Good morning. My name is Dave Farley. I'm one of the pastors here at GCF. Thanks so much for being with us this morning on this cold, snowy morning. Um, I want to recommend two resources quickly. Uh, The first one is by a guy named Andrew Davis. It's called How to Memorize Scripture for Life. Dr. Davis has memorized over 40 books of the Bible. Not verses, books. Uh, And he gives you the secret in this little booklet. If Scripture memory is hard for you, raise your hand. That's most of us. If you're not raising your hand, we're probably lying right now. Okay, this, this book is full of all kinds of practical tips on how to memorize the Bible effectively. So this is available in the bookstore. It's, it's, it's really short. If you don't like reading, it's only 50 pages. Great little book. Uh, and then this, this second book I recommended a couple of weeks ago. Uh, it's just called The Christian Gospel, A Short Account of the Momentous News About Jesus Christ. This book is designed, booklet, is designed to give to non-Christians. It's a, it's a very clear, brief explanation of Christianity. So if you're new this morning and you're, you're exploring the claims of Christ, this book is yours free of charge. Um, I'd recommend dads reading this to their families. Uh, you can give this away to your non-Christian friends. We have, we have lots of copies in the bookstore. It's $5. But this is a great little evangelistic tool uh, that you can use. So please consider grabbing this on the way out this morning. Uh, turn in your Bibles to John 21, 1 to 14, uh, and then I'm going to pray uh, as you're turning there. Father, thank you so much for the fact that your mercies are new every morning. Father, thank you that we arrived here this morning as justified sons and daughters of the King. Father, thank you that you have given us the Holy Scriptures. We pray that as the Scriptures are preached this morning that you would open up our eyes. Lord, give us understanding. Give us insight. Lord, help us apply the truths of this passage to our hearts and lives. May we leave this place this morning forever changed because of the truths of sacred scripture. Lord, help me as I preach, and I pray these things in Jesus' mighty name, amen. In 1969, Neil Armstrong became the first human being to step foot on the moon. As a result of this incredible achievement, He has been honored by many, many people since then. In fact, Armstrong has been honored with so many accolades that it would take me forever to list them. But let me just list a couple of the awards he's received. He was awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom from President Nixon, the Cullum Geographical Medal, the Collier Trophy, the NASA Distinguished Service Medal, uh, the Dr. Robert H. Goodard Memorial Trophy, the Sylvanus Thayer Award, uh, the Congressional Space Medal of Honor for President Jimmy Carter, the Wright Brothers Memorial Trophy, uh, and the list goes on and on and on. That's just the tip of the massive awards iceberg. Furthermore, uh, there are more than a dozen schools named for Armstrong in the United States, And many places around the world have streets, buildings, schools, and other places named after him. He even has two minerals named after him, uh, Armstrongite and Aramcolite. Whenever someone achieves something amazing, like walking on the moon, they are honored by many, many people. Well, the greatest achievement in the history of humanity, arguably, is the resurrection of the Son of God. And that's because that particular momentous event has transformed the lives of literally billions of people. And that brings us to John 21, 1 to 14. 
Jesus Christ has just risen from the grave, and the disciples haven't seen him in roughly a week, and they're wondering how to relate to him. So how should we all relate to the, the risen Christ? Well, because of his incredible accomplishment or achievement, we should relate to him with honor. Well, how exactly do we honor the risen Christ for this incredible achievement? Well, there are many ways. Uh, this text highlights a couple of those ways that we can honor him for his great achievement. We can honor him when we adopt his mission. We can honor him we pursue his presence, and we can honor him when we trust his gospel. Let's look at those three areas this morning. And again, the question is, how can you and I um, honor Jesus for his great achievement of rising from the dead? So first, we can adopt Christ's mission. Well, what is his mission? And the answer is uh, to make us fishers of men and women. Look with me at John 21, 1 to 6. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. And he revealed himself in this way. So again, it's been roughly a week since he's risen from the grave. Verse two, Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathanael of Canaan and Galilee, the son of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat but that night they caught nothing. Now why during the night? Because at night was the best time to go fishing. Verse four. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? Now that expression children was a term of endearment. They answered, no. He said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it, and now, they were, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. So again, it's been roughly a week since Christ has risen from the grave. These disciples are in Galilee. Peter was trained as a fisherman. That was his vocation. And so as they're waiting for Jesus, he figures we might as well fish uh, and make a little income. And they labored hard all night, and they caught nothing. They toiled and they toiled, and nothing seemed to happen. And then Jesus shows up, but they can't recognize him because he's a long ways off. And he says to them, why don't you try putting your net on the other side? And they do so, and lo and behold, they catch a massive number of fish. Now, why this particular story here after Christ has risen from the grave? Why does John include this story, post-resurrection? Well, the answer is because uh, it reminds us of our mission. Well, how do we know that? There are a few indicators in the context that, that uh, reveal that Jesus is talking here about the mission he's given the disciples and he's given to all of us as Christians. Well, what are some of those indicators? Just a few days before this encounter with Jesus, remember he rises from the grave, breathes on the Holy Spirit, and, and sends them out on mission. Then, uh, three years earlier in Mark 1.17, uh, Jesus encounters some of the same men in the same place on the same body of water. They're fishing for fish. And he says to them, come and follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And then even earlier, Actually, around the same time, uh, in Luke chapter 5, uh, Peter is fishing. 
and he's toiled all night, uh, he's labored, and he's caught nothing, and he's very discouraged. So the next morning, he's close to shore, he's cleaning out his nets, Jesus shows up and Jesus says, Peter, why don't you try casting your nets on the other side? Go out a little deeper and cast on the other side and see what happens. So Peter obeys Jesus, goes a little further out, casts his nets into the water on the other side of the boat, and lo and behold, he catches a massive number of fish. And what does Peter do in that moment? Remember the story? He's terrified. And he says to Jesus, Jesus, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man. He realizes that this guy is the son of God. He controls nature. He controls fish. And then Jesus says to Peter, Peter, from now on, I'm going to make you a fisher of men. Now, do you think that in this story in John 21, the disciples and Peter remember those previous encounters? (laughs) Of course they did. And they would have associated this particular story with those stories, realizing that Jesus has called them and he's called all of us to be fishers of people. And this great catch, 153, 153, 157, I think what the number is, a lot of fish, 153, is an indicator that there's going to be a great harvest coming. That brings us back to John 21, 11. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. That was an incredible catch, by the way. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. The point is simply this. Christ is reminding the disciples of the mission he's giving them, and he's also encouraging them and basically saying to them, as you Obey me and fulfill this mission. I'm going to help you catch lots of fish, lots of men and women. That's exactly what happens to Peter. Just a couple weeks later, after Pentecost, Peter preaches. And in one day, 3,000 people come to faith in Christ. Within a couple of weeks, there are 10,000 conversions to Christianity, mostly from the Jews. And over the years, there have been literally billions of converts to Christianity. Yes, Christ has helped the disciples over the years catch a massive amount of fish. When ordinary people like Peter and the disciples, untrained blue-collar workers, when they adopt Christ's mission, when they obey Christ's command, Christ uses them to do extraordinary things to catch a massive amount of people. Now, according to Tim Keller's biography, which I've read twice in the last year, it's very good, um, Tim Keller was um, a very socially awkward person. He admits it, his wife admits it, my friends that knew him all agree that he was very socially awkward. Furthermore, he was never in the cool crowd in high school or college. He was unathletic, he was 6'4", but he had a very tall, gangly frame, and uh, he, he really wasn't one of the cool kids uh, in high school uh, or college. Furthermore, he was very intellectually oriented, uh, he loved to read English literature, he loved to read J.R.R. Tolkien, he loved presuppositional apologetics, he loved to read the Puritans. Uh, he was a theological nerd who was socially awkward. He was a very ordinary guy. 
Before he was converted, he went off to Bucknell University in Pennsylvania uh, in the late 60s. In his freshman year of college, he's radically converted to Christ. And he joins this, this teeny tiny group of students, 10 to 15 students, through InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. Uh, it's this small group of social misfits that have had very little success in evangelizing a very secular campus. But in the next year, that group grew from 15 to 100, mostly through conversions. Then, uh, skipping ahead several years, after seminary, Tim Keller became the pastor of Hopewell Presbyterian Church in Hopewell, Virginia, a small blue-collar town all revolving around a large chemical factory. And again, Tim Keller is very white-collar, intellectual, loves to read, loves to study, shows up in this little town, uh, and in the whole church there's only two college degrees. It's, it's, it's a very strange pairing, Tim Keller with all these blue-collar folks. But over a period of 10 years, the church triples in size. God using a very ordinary person, Tim Keller, to do extraordinary things. And then, skipping ahead several years, uh, he feels a burden or a passion to plant a church in Manhattan. This is in 1989. So at that point, Manhattan was a very dangerous place. He was discouraged by all his friends. They said, Tim, Manhattan is full of crime. It's really expensive. You have small kids. It's very secular. There's been several failed church plants in Manhattan. Don't do it. You're crazy. This is not going to go well. Don't plant this church in downtown Manhattan in 1989. And remember, Tim Keller, at this point, is a very ordinary person. By the way, I didn't mention this earlier, but he also was a very poor manager of people. Um, later on in this particular church context, uh, his staff mutinies twice because he can't manage this large staff very effectively. Anyways, backing up, so he goes to Manhattan and with roughly 50 people, plants a church. And now that church is 5,000 people. And God has used that church to help start over 830 churches around the world in massive global cities. What's the point? Yes, Tim Keller has intellectual gifts, but he's a very ordinary guy, socially awkward, not a good manager of people. Yet God used him to fulfill his mission. When you and I, as ordinary people, adopt Christ's mission to honor the risen Christ, God in his grace and power loves to use us to do great things. And all of us in here are very ordinary, I think. I know I am. And this encourages me. If God can use Peter and these blue-collar fishermen and a guy like Tim Keller, God can use all of us to do extraordinary things if we are willing to adopt his mission and follow his plan. Now, how were these ordinary fishermen able to turn the world upside down in the first century. How? They depended on God. Notice who does what in this story. Um, all Peter did was cast them on the other side of the boat. He simply obeyed God. God was the one who caused all the fish to swim into that net. God was the one who caused this incredible harvest of fish. Peter was just obedient and faithful. In a similar sense, as we step out 
depending on God, in obedience and faith, God loves to use us to catch men and women with the gospel of Jesus Christ. John 15, 5, Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. And that's especially true in the area of mission, evangelism. Most of us feel powerless most of the time. Well, why is that? It's often because we're not depending on God through prayer. And prayer is where we must start. One scholar says this, in many impoverished portions of the world, the growth of the church seems almost out of control. The church, by the way, is exploding in growth in the global south right now and dying in the west. Why is the question? Mill, the great scholar, comments, in their poverty and weakness, they have to rely on prayer for the power of God and the simple direct sharing of the gospel. In North America, prayer has ebbed to a low tide, so that it is virtually impossible to get church members to make a commitment to concerted prayer. Just as Peter labored through the night in his own strength to find his nets empty in the morning, our widespread self-reliance and emphasis on worldly methods has left the church in the West spiritually poor and empty-netted. Again, fishing for people terrifies most of us, doesn't it? What's going to help us? You and I must humble ourselves and say, God, please help me. I, I feel like a coward right now. Give me strength. Give me opportunities. Give me boldness. Please use me, a very ordinary person, to do great things for your kingdom as I adopt your mission to honor you. Now, whenever evangelism comes up, I know so many of us feel guilty. Why? Because we don't do it. This is not designed uh, as a guilt trip. I don't want you all to walk out of here feeling guilty. I want you to walk out of here excited, thinking God loves to use ordinary, weak, broken people like me and you to do great things. And what a privilege to partner with God to tell people how they can be transferred from the domain of darkness to the domain of light. What a privilege. God wants to use you and me, ordinary people, like Peter and the disciples and Tim Keller, to do great things. And he's given us everything we need. When Christ rose from the grave, he poured out the Spirit, giving us supernatural power. So the key is, we have to pray for opportunities and boldness. Opportunities and boldness. Lord, today, give me a chance at the coffee shop or the athletic club or at the office or at school. Give me a chance, Lord. Just give me a chance. And then when that chance comes, give me boldness to speak up about you. Opportunities and boldness, that's the key. Praying for those two things. And as you pray for those things, it's amazing what happens. God answers those prayers. And life is very exciting. When you step out in faith, and obey Christ's commands, it is anything but boring. It's exciting. So often, so many of us don't sense our need for God's grace and power because we're not stepping out in faith, taking risks. But when you do that, you're gonna find out real quick, Lord, I need your power in this moment. Help me, help me. And God loves to help us. The more weak and powerless we feel, the better. Because that means that God gets more glory when good things happen. 
We honor the risen Christ by adopting his mission. But there's more to honoring the risen Christ than evangelism, which brings us to the next point. So how do we honor the risen Christ? First, we adopt his mission. And second, we pursue his presence. Look with me at John 21, verses 7 and 9. How do we pursue his presence? By imitating Peter. Verse 7. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, It is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid on it and bread. I love Peter. He's very impulsive and passionate. When he finds out that it's Jesus on the shore, he throws on his clothes, abandons all caution, abandons his friends, and impulsively jumps in the water, and the text tells us he's roughly 100 yards from shore. That's not a short swim fully clothed. He jumps in. Why? Because he can't wait to be near Jesus. According to one scholar, the emphasis on Peter's single-minded obsession to reach Jesus, he abandons everything, even his fellow disciples, and then fish in his haste to Jesus. Clearly, Peter can't get to Jesus fast enough. He is passionately pursuing relationship or fellowship with Jesus. Why? Why? Why is he so excited about seeing Jesus? Remember, roughly eight or nine days before this. What does Peter do? He commits the greatest sin of his life. Denies Jesus, not once, not twice, but three times in his hour of greatest need. Christ had all kinds of reasons to reject or ignore or abandon Peter, his old friend who stabbed him in the back. Well, when Christ rises from the grave and appears to Peter a couple days later, a few days before this story, what's the first thing he says to Peter and the disciples? He says, Peter, peace be with you. Forgiveness, grace, mercy. We're only gonna pursue Christ with wholehearted abandon when we understand how much God in Christ has forgiven us. And if we do, nothing's gonna get in our way from pursuing Jesus. Peter understands grace. He's been transformed by the grace of God. Therefore, he is passionately pursuing Jesus. How do we pursue Christ's presence? By imitating Peter. Well, why should we pursue Christ's presence is the next obvious question. And it's because Jesus amazingly wants to be our friend. Look with me at John 21, 9. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. And then skipping ahead to verse 12 and 13. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. 
Now, none of the disciples dared to ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. These are astonishing verses. Why? Jesus, the resurrected King of Kings, and Lord of Lords, Jesus, the Lord and giver of life, Jesus, the one who is all-powerful, Jesus, the one who is everywhere present in the universe, Jesus, who created all things out of nothing, that one, Jesus, wants to hang out with these guys. Amazing, amazing. He takes the time to gather sticks, make a fire, prepare fish, bake bread. He wants to have a meal with the disciples, with these sinners. Why? Jesus loves to fellowship with, to befriend, to get to know humans. Are you kidding? The maker of all things, the one who is thrice holy, that God wants to be the friend of sinners? Yes, he takes time to prepare a meal because he wants to spend time with them. He wants to converse with them. He wants to be friends with them. Utterly amazing. And here's the good news. Jesus invites everyone everywhere into relationship with himself. He wants to feast with you as well. And someday if you're a Christian, You'll feast with Christ for all eternity in the great marriage supper of the Lamb. Jesus says these words in Matthew 11, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come to me, he says, all who labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. John 7 37 to 38, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Christ does not just forgive us, as great as that is. He doesn't just want us to serve him, as wonderful as that is. He actually wants relationship, friendship. He wants to feast with us. He cares about us. He knows all of our needs, and he wants to be our friend. That's why we should pursue his presence. What does it look like to pursue the presence of Christ? We pursue his presence as we gather on the Lord's Day today to hear preaching, to celebrate the Lord's Supper, to watch a baptism, second service, sorry, this is first service, should have come later this morning, three baptisms, praise God. We pursue his presence as we engage in biblical fellowship. We pursue his presence as we read good Christian books. We pursue his presence as we read the Bible and pray, as we receive discipleship and counseling. That's how we pursue Christ's presence, which raises the question, how is that pursuit going these days? Are you pursuing the one, the maker of all things, who wants friendship with you? Are you pursuing him? Or are you pursuing other things more? 
the perfect body, the perfect career, more money, more vacations, more whatever. Only Christ will satisfy, and he longs to be our friend. But Dave, I've done some pretty awful things. That's why Jesus came and suffered and died, to forgive us, to cleanse us, to remove every obstacle to our fellowship with him. And when you trust him, he removes the guilt and stain of all that sin, and he becomes your friend. But is all this true? Is it really true? And that brings us to the last point. How do we honor the risen Christ? We adopt Christ's mission. We pursue Christ's presence. And third, we trust Christ's gospel. Well, what is the gospel? And the gospel is the good news that Jesus Christ came, he lived, he died, he rose from the grave so that all of our sins could be removed so that we could have fellowship with God. But is that true? Is that really true? How do we know that it's true? How can we really trust the gospel? Once again, this brings us back, third week in in a row, to the evidence for the resurrection. John 21, 14. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. These are not throwaway words from John. He wants to remind us Christ has appeared to to the disciples in in the context of John's gospel now three times. After he rose from the dead, he appeared, proving that he was actually alive. And if he rose from the dead, then he's God, and his claims must be true. Eyewitness testimony is all over the New Testament. It's very powerful. As I mentioned a few weeks ago, we learn about eyewitness testimony. The risen Christ was seen in different places, Over a period of 40 days, he was seen eating and drinking, walking and talking by male and female alike. He was seen over a dozen times. He was seen inside and outside by over 500 people at once. He was physically touched. None of the critics could produce his dead body. He was seen and believed by the Jews. This was all very public. In other words, these people could have been cross-examined because they were alive. Now, I want to compare this with other religions by showing you a chart that I showed a few years ago. This comes from a ministry called Credo House. How Christianity started. After a public ministry, Christ was killed publicly for thousands to see. Christ rose from a public tomb publicly. Christ publicly, you get the point here, Christ publicly showed himself to the public. The public told everyone what they saw. That's Christianity. Next chart. How other religions started. Private dream about God or private angelic encounter about God. Think of Islam or Mormonism, okay? Private idea about God, some philosophy or religion. And then one person told everyone what he saw. What's the point? Every other religion, you are receiving on blind faith based on the testimony of one person, Joseph Smith or Muhammad or Confucius. You're trusting your entire eternal 
soul or state to the testimony, the evidence of one person about something that was done in a very private context. On the other hand, Jesus' life, death, and resurrection were all very public. There were lots of eyewitnesses to observe what happened. And anyone in the first century could go and talk to the eyewitnesses and get the testimony. In light of this, one scholar writes these words. This is a very profound apologetic quote. He says this, Christianity is the world's most falsifiable religion, yet it survived. The believer in the Islamic faith has to trust in a private encounter Muhammad had, and this encounter is unable to be tested historically. We have no way to truly investigate the claims of Joseph Smith, and when we do, they are found wanting. Buddhism and Hinduism are not historic faiths, meaning they don't have central claims of events in time and space which believers are called upon to investigate. You either adopt their philosophy or you don't. There is no objective way to test them. Run through every religion that you know of and you will find this to be the case. Either it does not give historic details to the central events, the event does not carry any worldview changing significance, or there are no historic events which form the foundation of the faith. Every other religion but Christianity, you must accept on blind faith because of the testimony of one person. In other words, you cannot falsify it. On the other hand, Christianity's truthfulness is based on historical events that can be tested and proven true or falsified. It's the only religion that's historically defensible. And when all the critics attack the evidence, it still remains standing. It's very, very defensible. We are not called to a blind faith. Historical evidence for the historicity of the resurrection is very compelling. Ultimately, how do we honor the risen Christ? It starts by believing that he rose from the grave victoriously. If he rose, then everything changes. If he rose from the grave victoriously, then he's God. Then all your sins can be forgiven. You can be reconciled to God. You can be a friend of God. You have access to resurrection power. And you too will someday rise from the grave in a glorified resurrection body, all because Jesus rose from the grave 2,000 years ago. How do we honor the risen Christ by believing in the resurrection. Christ's resurrection is the greatest accomplishment in the history of the world. Nothing even comes close. What other accomplishment has affected billions of souls for eternity? In light of Christ's great resurrection accomplishment, he must be honored by everyone everywhere. How do we honor him? How do we honor the risen Christ? We adopt his mission, we pursue his presence, and we trust his gospel. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you 